This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I was reading a great book called Reading While Black by Dr. Esau McCauley. And Esau, I did not know you were going to be here today, but thanks for coming today. So uh, 70 years, there's a quote in this book by a man named Dr. Howard Thurman, who uh, 70 years ago said this. And uh, this quote really, it really struck my heart this week. Dr. Thurman was an African-American scholar, a pastor, a leader, a mentor to many uh, leaders, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, uh, I can count on one hand the number of times I've heard a sermon on the meaning of Christianity to the man who stands with his back against the wall. I want to be urgent, I want, my, I want to be urgent that my meaning is made crystal clear, he said. The masses of men live with their backs against the wall. The poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our faith say to them? Think about it. A six-year-old girl on the west side of Chicago shot dead in rival gang violence. A teenage boy living in rural Ohio with an opioid-addicted mom and no father in sight. An old woman dying in an apartment alone. An unborn baby girl inside her mother's womb, sucking life from her mother. The father of three children, unjustly, or even justly, convicted and incarcerated. What does our faith say to Thurman's man with his back against the wall? I was thinking about this question a lot. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a lawyer who cares deeply about the law and who cares deeply about criminal justice reform. Let's call his name Alec Smith because that's actually his name. And he was the guy up here leading worship this morning. And he has a day job. He's a lawyer. And he works for a judge. And he firmly, he says he firmly believes, I put in my original sermon and I, I wanted him to approve this, I said he believes in the practice of law and law applied. He said, no, I firmly believe in it. But he also sees grave injustices in the criminal justice system. So I did some research, I talked to Alec. I had no idea that four out of five, that's 80%, of people who are convicted of a crime in this country are too poor to afford an attorney. So they are assigned a public defender. Those public defenders are notoriously under-resourced and overwhelmed with cases. So I asked Alec, how bad is this? And he said, it is tragic. And it's depressing when you start to realize how little most Americans know about the direct link between poverty, an inadequate defense, and high rates of incarceration in this country. Now, I'm not saying that everybody goes to jail doesn't deserve to go to jail. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying with Alec that there are injustices in our criminal justice system. What does our faith have to say about that? Well, I'll just say, a lot. The Bible, the life of Jesus, the history of the church, the heart of our worship 
flowing from the Eucharist of a God who lays down his life in love for us, sacrifices his life for us. Our faith has a lot to say about the man, the woman, the child with their backs against the wall. In the first sermon, I talked about a virtue that we need as we engage the public square. I called that virtue fierce civility. In this sermon, I'm going to talk about another virtue that we need. I'll call that virtue prophetic humility. And so if you like outlines, here's the outline. Point number one, prophetic. Point number two, humility. Point number three, how we engage the public square with prophetic humility. So what do we mean by prophetic? Well, the first scripture reading you heard was a, was a great example of this prophetic stream that we find running throughout the Bible. And King Lemuel is a man that we know nothing about, basically, except that we know he was a politician. And we know that before he got into politics, his mama taught him some really important lessons about life and politics. So in this one, he says that this is an oracle that his mother taught him. I love that. It's just so touching and so personal. And what does it say? It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Two times. Open your mouth. Open your mouth or speak up. Speak up for the destitute, or the literally, in the Hebrew, those who are fading away. They're just, they're voiceless. They're unseen. They're unknown. They're hidden, and they're just fading away. Now, one of the frustrating things might be that Lemuel and his mama didn't give any specifics. Like, what are the specific policies that we should enact right now to make sure that we can defend the poor and the needy. How much should the gov federal government get involved? How much should the state and local governments get involved? How much should nonprofits and churches get involved? And by the way, when I say politics, I mean all of those things, not just the federal government, not just the president of the United States. I mean the whole spectrum, all the spheres, all the way down into the most largest and most complex to the smallest and least complex. That's all politics. It can be really complicated. And, and I want us to grasp this. I want us to wrestle with this. Let me give you a specific example. So this week, I read about a study conducted by the University of Chicago and Notre Dame that, that found that in the last three months, six million people have been added to the roles of what's considered poverty level in this country. Six million people. One economist said people are having a lot more trouble paying bills and putting food on the table. The next day, I read a report that said that we are ending the fiscal year as a country with a record federal deficit of $3.1 trillion. I want us to see how complex this is. How long can we keep spending money we don't have? Who's going to pay for that? Not my generation. My grandkids' generation and their generation. They're going to pay for that. That's irresponsible. But six million people fading away into poverty, most of them children, that's tragic. 
Now, we may not agree on what is the best policy to really help. And there have been a lot of well-intended policies that really didn't help the poor. But here's one thing we cannot debate as a church. Mother Church is like Lemuel's mama. And what is she saying? Don't let the destitute just fade away. Hear them. See them. Speak up for them. A few months ago, our bishop gave a talk on a Wednesday night forum in which he talked about two ditches that we can fall into when it comes to issues of justice and injustice. And one of the ditches, he said, is the, what he called the ditch of detachment. The ditch of detachment is we just get so comfortable with our life and our lifestyle that we, we get detached. We get numb. We don't feel. We don't see. We don't hear. That's the ditch of detachment. And Lemuel's mama is, it, it told him sometime in his life, it said, son, when you get privilege, when you get power, don't just use it on yourself. Don't just use it on people like you. Don't just use it on the rich and powerful, but use your power to defend the rights of those who have no power. So as Christians, we should all agree, no matter what our policies are, or what our politics are, that we have a passion. That passion looks like this. We want to order our common life in such a way However it gets arranged, we want to arrange it so the poor and vulnerable are treated with dignity and they don't just fade away. I have some friends, so I've talked to a lot of people and, and I love listening to people and hearing what, where different people are coming from and I always come away learning something new, I really do. I have some friends who grew up under communism, some of them in this church. And they're very concerned about, when we talk about justice and injustice, that there will be a reemergence of communist thought. They saw what it did. They saw what it did to their own country. They saw the terror. They saw the gulags stretched out for hundreds of miles and millions of people in slave labor camps. They saw the terror. They saw the death. They saw people being hauled away in the middle of the night on trumped-up charges. And what can I say to them? I sympathize with you. I really do. I, I get it. But I also want to say, you know, the Bible has a better vision of human flourishing when it comes to justice and injustice. But it's also, it's white hot with passion. There's a prophetic stream that runs through the Bible and it's deep and it's broad. And it's powerful. And if you cut it out of the Bible, your Bible would just be literally full of holes because it runs throughout the Bible. It's in the character of God. That's the most important thing. It's in God's nature. It's not something that we make up. It's not something that we strive for. It, is, it flows from God. It flows from who he is, and it's demonstrated in the life of Jesus. There's a guy named Tom Holland who's a British historian. He, he does not consider himself a Christian. But he argues very convincingly, to me at least anyway, that our modern ideas of justice come from the Bible. He said before the Jews came along, praise God for the Jews, 
Holland said, any sense, and I quote, any sense that the poor or weak might have the slightest intrinsic value really did not exist. When Jesus showed up, he loved and embraced people across racial, ethnic lines, and even more shockingly, the sick and children who were intrinsically devalued. One of the mysteries of the black church is how the black church in America adopted but transformed the religion of their masters. Two scholars wrote a book on this and they said, what happened? Here's their summary. They fell in love with the God of scripture. In the Bible, they found not just an otherworldly God offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God acting in history and promising to act in the future who cared for the oppressed. The author said they also found Jesus, a suffering savior whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. That's the prophetic stream, and it runs deep in scripture. It's not an add-on. It's part of our faith. St. Augustine spoke for many in the early church, many Christian leaders, when he said this in one of his sermons, a very touching sermon. He told his congregation, now it is winter. Think how the naked Christ can be clothed. Pay attention to him as he lies on the portico, suffers hunger, and endures the cold. I love that. You can see it's getting colder, like here. It's getting colder. Winter is coming. It's going to be harder for more people. Think how the naked Christ can be clothed. That's the prophetic stream. What about the humility part? And how does this go together? Well, we saw in our gospel reading a beautiful example of humility. And maybe this sermon really should have been called it should have been titled Humble Propheticness, but that just didn't have a good ring to it. But what's the humble part? Luke chapter 18, this parable. Just simple parable about two men who go up to pray. And I love the way Jesus tells it. He tells it like a New Yorker would tell it. It's just short, it's blunt, it's direct, it's in your face. Two guys go up to pray. Two guys trying to get life right. Two guys trying to justify themselves, trying to say, I'm a good person. I've done life right. And one of them says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like them. Whoever they are, I'm not like them. And I'm so glad about that. He's a guy that does not see his own tragic bentness and sinfulness. He only sees it in other people. He has the moral high ground. He epitomizes what I called last week the politics of contempt. You know, one of the pictures for sin in the Bible, which has, the Bible has such a rich vocabulary and so many rich images for sin, our sinful heart. One of them is uh, a guy shooting an arrow and the arrow doesn't fly straight, but it just it goes wonky and it goes off and it misses the target. And it's so much like life, so much like my life. 
You know, you think you're doing right. You think you're righting the world's wrongs. You think you're really helping. You think you're really loving. You're such a loving person. I'm such a loving person. I'm doing so much good. And you're shooting these arrows and they're going that way and they're going that way and they're going this way and they're hitting people and they're, they're not hitting the target. The apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter seven. He said, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's a picture of sin. It's a picture of all of our best efforts to right the world's wrong. So Jesus in Luke chapter 18, he's not just telling a cute story. He's not just giving advice. He's not entertaining us. He's dismantling our entire project of trying to justify ourselves. Because sin gets into everything, gets into marriages, it gets into how children treat parents, how parents treat children. It gets into political parties and political systems. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, like the book of Amos, for instance, it's also really clear that it gets into nations. Nations have specific sins. So the prophet Amos calls out specific sins of specific nations. Now, let me just say something. I love this country. I really do. And it makes me sad when people bash basically everything about America. But on the other hand, if we are a nation composed of 330 million sinners who elect sinners to public office, it will be reasonable to expect that at some point we are going to sin, that we will have national sins, that we have had national sins, that we have them now, and that we will continue to have national sins, that our politicians will sin, that we will have policies that are warped by sin. That's what sinners do. They sin. They hurt people. What do we do as Christians when our sin is exposed? Well, here's the hero of this story, the publican. He can't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or like the old spiritual said, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Me standing in the need for mercy. And what do we find as Christians? We are never abandoned in our sin. We're never alone. You sin, maybe you sinned this week. Maybe you did some things you, you regret. Maybe you said some things or did some things or thought some things or didn't do some things. And, and one of the temptations when we sin is, is that we feel like we're alone. We're left alone in it. You're not alone. That's the good news of the gospel. We have an advocate. We are more loved than we could ever dare to imagine. We have a friend of sinners. Jesus, the friend of sinners. That's not just for children. That's for adults. He is our advocate. He's for us, not against us. So Christians hold these, these two things together the prophetic and the humility. 
We, we call out sin and injustice. But then we cry out for mercy because we see our own sin in our own hearts. We work for others to receive justice, but then we also live before a holy God whom we know, before whom we know we need, we need forgiveness. We hold these two things together, prophetic humility. So how do these two virtues, the, the fierce civility and the prophetic humility that I've been talking about over these two sermons, how can they shape our political engagement? Well, again, we could say a lot of things. We could talk about a lot of things, but, but let me give three things. Let me just give three words of how I think the scriptures and the history of the church inform our involvement in politics. Three words, vocation, advocacy, and prayer. Vocation. Some of you may, or you already are, and some of you, if you're in college, or some of you, you may devote your career to the political sphere or the legal sphere. You have some great role models in the Bible. Joseph in the Old Testament, King David, Esther. There's some great role models. We have a member of this church, a man named Morse Tan, who was nominated to be the global ambassador of criminal justice for the United States of America. He studied law. He became an expert on human rights abuses in North Korea. And he was tapped for that position. What an incredible opportunity to promote justice for the glory of God, which is his goal. So let me just give you a warning, though. If you feel called to this, or if you're in this, or if you might go into politics, let me just give you a warning. It will be costly. It will take a lot out of you. Every career does, but this in special ways. You will be tempted by power. You will be tempted by self-righteousness. You will be tempted to, like the, the first man in Jesus' parable, to look down on people that don't do it right, that don't get it right that don't see what you see. Your heart will be broken sometimes by the world's pain. But if God has called you, God will equip you. And let me say, you're also not alone. The church will stand beside you. That is a noble and honorable calling. And we would love to pray for you and walk beside you. Second thing, advocacy. Proverbs chapter 22, 23 says, Do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case. The Lord God himself is the ultimate advocate for the poor. And we get called under his advocacy to participate with him. Let me tell you about a friend of mine named Keith, and he's a member of Res. And he told me this amazing story. That's not his real name, but he gave me permission to share this story. So he felt called, felt the Lord nudging him. He needed to speak up. He needed to advocate on behalf of the unborn. So he went to a local meeting for his congressperson, his representative. And 
During the Q&A time, he felt like the Lord nudging him. You need to say something. You need to stand up and say something. So he stood in line and finally got to the microphone. And he told this politician, he said, I know you value science. I know that's really important to you. So I would like you to consider scientifically endorsing the position that human life begins at conception. As soon as he mentioned that, people in the crowd started hissing. People in the crowd started talking back. People in the crowd said, sit down. This isn't church. They mocked him. That politician mocked him as well. Said, well, it's obvious you don't care about women. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel that way. You wouldn't think that way. You wouldn't even say that. Keith sat down. He told me later, at first, I felt like a total failure. But I just wanted, I just wanted him to look somebody in the eye and rethink his position. And then he said, but I am glad I did it. And I said, I'm glad you did it too. That took guts. I don't think I have that much courage. Richard John Newhouse, who was a uh, political thinker, he once said that for Christians in politics, it's usually not the path of success, but it's always the path of the cross and the resurrection. Keith did that. And I told him, the church is proud of you, Keith, for doing that. That's advocacy. Let me give you a couple other quick examples. Well, I've already told you about Alex Smith, who is passionate about advocating for the poor and criminal justice reform. I was also talking this week to some young leaders in our diocese, in our church, who have been over the past months advocating for the poor, for the voiceless, about what's happening at the US-Mexico border. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I was really skeptical about what, when they first started talking to me. Thought, that can't be happening, that can't be that bad. Children being separated from their mothers, that just, that's, come on, that's just fake news. But I began doing some research, I began listening to them, and they've been there. And I gotta say, I think our government's doing better now, but I think we didn't handle that well. I think the goal, as far as I understand, the goal was to deter illegal immigration. But I think the way we did it was really inhumane. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I, I'm proud of our young leaders. I'm proud of them for caring about that. I'm proud of them for going down there and seeing what's going on. You know, I am honored to serve at a church where we have people advocating for the unborn, for criminal justice reform, and around issues of immigration. May the Lord, and I know a lot of you are doing things quietly behind the scenes that will never be made public, but I, I know, I know what you're doing. The Lord knows what you're doing. That's the work of advocacy. And finally, there's the work of prayer. Harriet Tubman, great abolitionist, African-American abolitionist said, she constantly prayed every day, this, this prayer, I'm going to hold steady onto you, Lord Jesus, and you've got to see me through. William Wilberforce, a British politician, 
who fought for the abolition of the slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries. He said, O Lord, reassure me with your quickening spirit. Without you, I can do nothing. O Lord, I know what I am, but to you I flee for refuge. I love that prayer. That's for anybody, anybody that wants to engage in the political level at any level. This is important gospel work. But the needs can be overwhelming. And according to St. Paul, we're not just fighting against bad politics and bad politicians, but we're also fighting against principalities and powers, the rulers of this present darkness. I have seen people engage in the work of righting the world's wrongs, and I have seen their marriages blow up, their emotional life crash, their children turn away from the Lord and the church. We cannot do this work without being deeply rooted, abiding in the life of Jesus. It's like, you know, I just had this image. It's like, it's like showing up for a, to fight a California wildfire with a squirt gun. You're just, you're, you're, you don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. Harriet Tubman realized that. William Wilberforce realized that. So one of the things I love about being a follower of Jesus, one of the things I love about being an Anglican is we, we pray for everybody. We pray for politicians we like. We pray for politicians we don't like. And in praying for them, we hope that we will love them and realize that the Lord would work through them. We pray for the poor. We pray for refugees. We pray, as our canon theologian Father Stephen loves to say, we pray for people that everyone else has given up on. That's what we do. Because we know the Lord hasn't given up on us. He has been our advocate. He has redeemed us. He has been our friend of sinners. And so we take that and we let that work through every sphere of our life. I'm going to hold steady onto you, Lord Jesus, and you've got to see me through. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.